Our New Testament reading uh, today comes from 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, and we'll just be reading verse 17. And then we'll also be back in Matthew 6, but we'll start here. Hear the word of the Lord. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. Now we've spent uh, this past year working through this series on the foundations of the faith, and today we're going to be bringing that to a close. I hope it's been helpful um, from my vantage point. Hopefully it's not just biased because I want it to have been helpful, but from my vantage point, I think it's been good for us as a church. We started with what it is that we believe as Christians using the outline of the Apostles' Creed to guide us through the Scripture. We then looked at the Christian life, how we are to live before the face of God using the Ten Commandments. And finally, we've been looking at our worship and the inner life that we have in our union with Christ all in the Lord's Prayer. We'll be finishing that up today and uh, moving on to the Gospel of John next week. Now, as we finish uh, the Lord's Prayer, you'll notice I didn't read for us from Matthew 6. I read from 1 Timothy 1.17. And maybe you'll notice that uh, we haven't, as we've been reading in Matthew 6, read the final words that most of us know and recite when we recite the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, if you have an ESV, which is what we uh, mostly use here, at least what I use to preach, uh, what are in the pews in front of you, or a lot of other modern translations, you'll notice that that line is missing from Matthew 6, but there will be a little footnote right at the end of the Lord's Prayer. And if you follow down to the very bottom of the page you'll read something that says something to the effect of some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you have uh, the King James Version, if that's what you use, likely you've already had this longer ending in the the body of, of the text itself. Now the Bible, as we have it, uh, has come down to us as it was faithfully copied, usually by hand, especially for the the earliest documents, definitely by hand. And these we call manuscripts, right? Before the the days of photocopying and things like that, if you were going to make a copy, uh, which was very expensive to do of any book, but particularly the scriptures, as from the very earliest days, it was of the utmost importance to get scripture to whoever Uh, whoever the church could get it to, right, copying as much as possible and faithfully preserving it, Uh, what you would do is you would have people copy it by hand. There are many monks and others who would spend their days simply copying the text of Scripture to make more copies of it. And in some cases, uh, some of the manuscripts that we have of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew uh, doesn't have that longer ending that we're so used to. Uh, It it doesn't show up in the Gospel of Luke 
and it only shows up in some of the manuscripts we have for the Gospel of Matthew. Particularly um, if you, you know, follow the, the way that the, the scriptures were passed on in, in the West, in the Latinized world, um, this seems to not be there. As I've been working through and preparing these sermons on the Lord's Prayer, uh, some of the commentators I've been using are early church fathers, uh, like Cyprian and Tertullian and Origen, and they don't comment on that portion of the text because it, they did not even have that. However, some of the textual tradition coming mostly from the East in the Greek-speaking world does include this final doxology. And so because it's not everywhere, there's a debate about whether or not this is actually original. Now that shouldn't uh, trouble you as far as thinking that, you know, maybe we can't trust the text of Scripture, um, the, the beauty of, of having uh, so many manuscripts of of the text of Scripture down through the ages, as we know, when something gets added to the textual tradition, which is in very small number of cases, but when it does, uh, it, it stays there. So it's not as though we don't have the original words of Christ, and we are, we're lost, and we don't know what to believe. It just means that there's a few places where something may have been added later on. This may be one of those cases. You could see how it would be done, not maliciously in any way, uh, but especially in some of the earliest Greek liturgies that we have, their, their worship services, so like this, like what we do, uh, they included this doxology when they prayed. Now you can imagine, uh, you know, a Greek-speaking monk who's been going to church most of his life, and he's used to reciting this, and it's late, and he's copying a manuscript by, by candlelight. I don't know if this is actually how it happened, by the way. I'm just trying to paint a picture of how this could have happened. You can imagine, though, that, you know, he's writing out the Lord's Prayer. He's at this portion of Matthew, and, and he's so used to just saying this ending that he would continue on and, and keep that in. Now, all that being said, I, I just want to explain why for some of your translations it's not there. I personally, I don't actually know what to think about whether or not we should find this to be uh, original or not. I'm not actually that interested in uh, debating it, because I don't feel very strongly either way. I'm not convinced that this isn't original to Jesus' words, but at the same time, even if it's not, uh, I, it doesn't bother me at all that we still use it, that we know it, that we recite it when we say the Lord's Prayer. And uh, the reason I started by reading 1 Timothy 1.17 is simply to show that uh, whether or not uh, this is uh, textual or, or whether it's liturgical, right, whether it originated as part of the liturgy of the church or whether it is actually the original words written down, uh, it is perfectly biblical. It's a perfectly true statement that the kingdom and the power and the glory belong to the Lord. Amen. This kind of doxology, we find it in 1 Timothy 1.17. We find in Revelation, we find it all throughout both Old and New Testament. Very similar wording even. So we don't have to worry too much in that uh, this is all backed up completely by what Scripture teaches us. We're going to be using this doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer as kind of the final amen to this series, the final amen to our year. Uh, but if it would bother your conscience at all, wondering if that was really supposed to be there. Don't worry, it's, it's fully biblical and right and true. That's why we started in 1 Timothy 1.17.
But it's fitting that we would end our year in this way, right, on these words. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, our year began with worship, right? January 1st was a Sunday. Uh, We started being able to worship, and in the providence and goodness of God this year, uh, we get to end our year here once again, worshiping together, right? A final amen. And so we close this year and we look to the next. And while we do that, let the cry of our hearts together and individually be, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the kingdom belongs to our God. Earlier in the Lord's Prayer, we looked at the words, Thy kingdom come, right? Your kingdom come, which we noted meant that uh, Christ would build his kingdom in and through us, that he would destroy the kingdom of darkness, that this kingdom of grace would grow, and that he would bring about the culmination of all things. And in this context, when we say, uh, for yours is the kingdom... You are affirming that your God is sovereign, that he is reigning and ruling as the king of kings. Now, speaking in terms of, you know, king and kingdoms, that might sound almost medieval to you. It's a concept that uh, politically is quite foreign to our experience and our way of life. And so it might be easy to hear those words, say those words, but not really firmly understand what it is that you're confessing when you say it. The context that you live in is one where you've been given an incredible amount of freedom, freedom of action, freedom of choices. At the same time, you've been uh, likely, in different ways, indoctrinated, taught that uh, you have some kind of you know, libertarian freedom, that ultimately your destiny is something that you are in charge of. So you may have been told that you can be who you want to be. You can do what you want to do. That if you believe in yourself enough and you're able to uh, express your individuality that that is how you kind of find your way in life. When you add to that uh, a pluralistic vision that there's no truth that is the truth, right? There's no, uh, you know, God that's the, the God. There's, there's all kinds of things you can believe, and whatever you want to believe is true for you. When you add those two things together... that individual expression with a pluralism, what you have is everybody seeking to build their own kingdom and to be their own king, right? To be your own sovereign, that, that you will be the decider of everything that happens in your life. But you aren't the sovereign, right? I'm not the sovereign. The rightful ruler of your life is our Father in heaven. The one who makes the decisions ultimately, it's not you. He made you. And he has every right to direct your life how he sees fit. 
If it's his kingdom, his rule, then you have a duty to obey and to follow him. And as you think then about New Year's resolutions, uh, perhaps you should be praying that this year the Lord would help you to be even more obedient to him. That you would grow in obedience. That you'd grow in service. That you would live as though he is your sovereign. Right? There, and there are all kinds of things that you may want to do, that you want to accomplish, that you want to be known for. And much of it might be good. Much of it might be perfectly acceptable and right. But if your vision for your life and who you want to be, is it, is it in line with who he wants you to be? Is it in line with who he has made you to be? What he has called you to? That's ultimately the question. If he is the sovereign, if he is the king, then what he wants is more important than what we want. Brothers and sisters in Christ, all power belongs to our God. Not only is he sovereign in terms of his position, that he is the king, he is sovereign in terms of his power. Not only does he rule in theory, he rules in actuality. There's nothing that God cannot accomplish if he desires to. He is not hampered in by your bad choices. He is not constrained by the powers and rulers and kingdoms of this world. There is no obstacle beyond his ability to overcome. Not just because he can overcome anything, not just because he is greater than any obstacle, but because even those things which seem to be obstacles to what he wants in the world are things that he providentially works through and that he is sovereign over. It's even the obstacles that in his goodness and his wisdom he has put in place. Think for a moment about all those things in the world that you think of as powerful. Right? When you think about power, what comes to mind? Think of the natural forces that you see around you. you know, have you ever watched a, a large thunderstorm moving in? Right? You feel the, the rumbling of the thunder. You see the lightning. You, you feel the wind. And it gives you that sense. You, you are totally without control over that. Right? You are totally out of control. Think about the Mississippi, the, the kind of power in the current of a great river. Think about uh, if you've ever had a chance to stand at the bottom of a large waterfall. Just the, the, the power as the water just explodes against rock. Just think about all of these things that when you see them, when you hear them, when you feel them, you have that sense that you are not the one in control with the power. Now what about other kinds of, of powerful things that you see at work in the world? 
right, the military might that you might see on display at times or through history, firepower, explosives, the sheer power of numbers. Think of the powers of manipulation, of group and mob action, especially when people are enraged. Think about the destructive force that many are capable of. Think of political power, the immovable force that bureaucracy can represent. Think about economic power, the incredible wealth that gives one the ability to accomplish things that seem near impossible. And that's to say nothing of the spiritual powers that are at work throughout the world, exerting various levels of will upon the earth. True power is ultimately the ability to accomplish what it is that you want. To bring about your purposes. And all of those powers, whether they be natural, physical, political, economic, spiritual, right, none of them can even begin to approach the power of our Father in heaven. All power is ultimately borrowed in some sense from him or given from him. Right? Maybe you at times in your life, maybe even right now, you've come up against forces in the world uh, that you feel totally helpless to fight against. You see evil and oppression that you can't possibly stop. You have enemies that seem to stand against you. It seems like there's no way of, of overcoming them. You see the size and the scope of the power in the world. How it's often used by truly wicked people for wicked purposes. And as you look out at that and you see various powers right, exerting themselves in the world, you see it and you become despondent. Or you become hopeless. You want to give up. Right? You become hopeless because you feel helpless. But all power truly belongs to our Father in heaven. And so when we confess, when we say together, yours is the power, you're affirming that anything that God desires to accomplish, he will accomplish. It might not be according to our timelines. It might not be in the way that, that we think he should do the things that he does. But ultimately, it is, it is our God, your Father, remember. Not, not just any God, but your Father, who you're united to in Christ, who is working out his purposes everywhere, all the time. What does that mean for you? It means that you should trust him. It means that you should not lose hope, but hope in him. Right? Maybe at times you see the, the depravity of the world. You see various powers. You feel helpless and you, you lose hope. You lose faith. But it's because you, you weren't placing your hope and faith ultimately in our Father. Right? You had some kind of hope, some kind of faith, but it was placed elsewhere. 
And so when ultimately you're, you're faced with something that you cannot overcome and that whatever you're trusting, whatever you're hoping in cannot overcome, again, you become, you become hopeless, but maybe that's good, right? Because the only place that you should be placing your trust, your faith, your hope is ultimately in our Father. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Be still and know that He is God, that He has all power. Brothers and sisters in Christ, all glory belongs to our God. That means that He is worthy of your time, your money, your affection, your attention, your love, and your worship. He deserves everything from you. You know, it's often that uh, we generally think of ourselves as the main character in the story of our lives. It's easy for us to you know, read books or watch movies, and we see the protagonist, and we just like we put ourselves in that position. That's who we are in the story. We think of ourselves as the lead actor, the one that it's all about. Right? And when good things happen, right, it's because, the, it's because of the, the main character, right? We deserve some praise, applause. I love the story. This is going to seem like I'm, you know, just jumping somewhere else, but I'm not. Just follow with me. Trust me. I love the story of Joshua just before the, the battle of Jericho, if you can call it a battle. But just before they, they go and conquer Jericho... The night before, we're told Joshua looks out and he sees a man with a sword standing outside of the camp, right, just before a great battle. And so he goes and he, he speaks to him. And he asks this strange man, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man says, no. <laughs> right, that's his answer. It wasn't a yes or no question, right? But he says, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Right? No. Right? The question isn't whether or not, as the commander of the Lord's army, was he for me or is he against me? Right? Well, is God for me or is he against me? That's not the right question. Right? Are you with him? Are you for him? The sovereignty and the power are God's and they will be used for his glory. And God loves you. Right? He, does, he wants good things for you if you are in Christ. I can say that confidently. But that doesn't mean that ultimately his power is for you. Right? It is as you're united to him. But ultimately you are for him. Not the other way around. And, and that shouldn't sound like a negative thing to us. We might hear that and think well why isn't he for me? No, it shouldn't sound negative at all. What an honor and a privilege that you have to, to devote yourself to the God of all creation. And it's what you're made for. Right? That's the purpose for which you were made for. And you can have it in Him. You were made to be for Him, for His glory. And He's more than worthy of all of your time. Right? All of your 
energy and your intention and your effort and your money and your family, your schedule, your work, your life, your worship and your praise. And you'll never be actually at rest until you rest in him. You will never be fulfilled unless you seek that fulfillment in his glory. Because that's what you were made for. You were made to enjoy him and glorify him, right? Serving him as he has called you and made you to do. Right? He is to be the focus of your life. And everything uh, in life without that being your primary focus will ultimately come to nothing and it will seem valueless. But when you seek first his kingdom, his glory, then everything else will be added unto you. Everything else will seem valuable. He is the sun. Without him, all things are, are dark, without color, without form. But in the light of his glory, everything becomes brilliant. You are made ultimately to be the, the supporting character in his story. Right? To be for him and about him. You are here in order that you might make what he is doing and who he is all the more brilliant. Not because you can add to his glory, but you can reflect it. Jesus Christ has chosen that the way he wants to make his glory known in the world is through you. That's how he has determined that he will make himself known and show forth his power, his sovereignty, and his glory. So what he wants, that is what you should want. Right? What he is doing, that is what you should want to be doing. What he loves, that is what you should love. Everything that you are should be ultimately about him. Everything that you do should be about him. He is Lord. He is almighty. He is worthy of all glory and praise. And so what is your response? Right? In the light of that reality, what should your response be? How can you respond? how we end. Amen. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen is a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word. It's a, a strong confirmation. Right? It is to say truly. Right? When you read Jesus' words, he says, truly, truly, I say unto you. He's saying, amen, amen. Right? Amen, amen. This, this is so true. Right? Listen, it's so true. It's, it's a confirmation. Yes. Amen. It's, it's right. It's true. I believe it. May it be so. That's what you're saying when you say amen. And in light of the total sovereignty and power and the glory of your God, let your response be amen. Right? Let your life be the amen to his glory. And by the grace of God, may this next year for each of you and for all of us, right, for us corporately as a body, 
and be one giant amen to the work of God, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all of us, all God's people say, amen, amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, to you be all glory. We're so grateful for your kindness to us, for your love to us. And we are so in awe of your power, your majesty, your might. We ask that you would be at work glorifying yourself in us. That as you have united us to yourself, as we now walk by your spirit, as your body with you is our head, would you, Lord, make yourself known? Would you, Lord, bring many sons to glory through the work of this church in the coming year? Would you help us to truly amen your glory in all that we do? To you be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? And let's close.